I love mm-hmm. my life. I love my wife. I love my kids. I'm not going to get snuck up on by my own mind. I want to live. I want to live well. And maybe if people just started speaking truth about their experiences, maybe that would help change the culture. Hello and welcome to the Forge Resilience Podcast. Here we're going to be talking to experts in the field and true heroes that understand the impact of mental and physical resilience. Hi, my name's Lacey Wolf. And I'm Chris Wolf. We hope you'll join us in building a community to help first responder and military families forge resilience. Welcome back to the Forge Resilience Podcast. It's hey. been a while since our last recording. There's a lot of reasons for that. We have, as a family, been you know, really just trying to live the things we talk about. And one of the things that we've done over the last several months is we got an RV and started traveling with our kids that are growing up way too fast. Yes, we really realized that uh, our oldest is just about out the door and we got heavy into this RV and I'm loving it. It's a great way to really connect with your family and, you know, get away from the stresses of work and uh, kind of peak that adventure that we all kind of need in our lives. We got another great show. Lacey, why don't you explain how, how did this happen? Why are, why are we back now with such great guests? Yeah, so I just started back with the next two-year cycle of LEMIT, which is the Law Enforcement Management Institute of Texas, a wonderful organization that is at, uh, housed at San Houston State University. And I'm very fortunate I have a four-hour block with every chief across the state of Texas. And so in the very first one, I'm talking about mindfulness and self-compassion, which is a topic that is not easy to talk about often. The gentleman that you're going to hear today, Bill Lattimore, was the first one to speak up when I asked, has anybody here ever tried meditation? And he shared his personal story and how it truly changed his life. And so I asked him if he would record a podcast with me because I wanted everybody to hear what he had to say. Now, this is a really neat uh, story, and Chief uh, Lattimore does a really good job just saying it from his perspective. And a lot of people might not realize how prevalent small police departments are. You know, when we when we think about a police department, a lot of times we're thinking about a municipality with, you know, many police officers. And, and Chief's story is so interesting because he talked about some of the most traumatic events he went through. He then had to go back and process as an officer because who else is going to do it? It's hard to imagine the, the level of stress and exposure that officers from these small departments are exposed to. Chief Lattimore's just got great advice that hopefully it inspires you to get out. I, I was personally inspired to really look at myself. He, he talked about, you know, thinking of, of uh, therapy as a visit to the dentist, you know, getting just flossing those teeth and keeping up, you know, routine maintenance on yourself and, and hopefully you'll listen to this and get inspired as well. And or maybe someone that you know and someone that you love or care about can benefit from it. You can pass the story on to them. Yeah, that's our hope is that the story just continues to be shared and to inspire other people. All right, well, All right. enjoy the episode and let us know what you think. Good morning and thank you so much for taking the time to record a podcast with me. I know you said this is your first podcast and you haven't actually listened to a lot of podcasts, right? That is absolutely correct. I have not listened to a podcast yet. Okay. (laughs) Well, you're going to be on one before you listen to one. So maybe your own will be your first. It's a great way to get information out to people. And man, when I was in the classroom with you at Leave It recently, and I heard you speak, you know, a lot of times you're you're in these moments and you're like, I wish everybody could hear this. And that's why I have a podcast, because I want to be able to share information from great people with everybody. And so I can just say, here, listen to this guy. He's amazing. So thank you for <laughs> being willing to have this conversation with me and to share your experience and your story. I just felt a really uh, a strong connection there in the classroom. And I'm like, that'll be fun. We'll do this. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's start with, can you sort of just paint a picture of who you are for folks that are listening, give everybody kind of an overview of your, your background, your law enforcement career, and anything else sure. that you think folks might want to know. Sure. I'm from a small town, Columbus, Texas, about 3,500 people, and all of my law enforcement career, which was right at 28 years, has been in a small area. The officers I served with, one group was 11 in one town, one group was nine, 
So it's all been small area law enforcement. I'm 58 years old, married my high school sweetheart. We've been together 40 years. Got three kids, seven grandkids. One is imminent. We're waiting on the phone call any second. And um, just kind of fell into law enforcement. I wasn't looking to be a cop. It just uh, seemed like something to do. And when I went to the academy, it was uh, in 1989. So it was less. It was less hours, and we didn't really talk about mental wellness or anything like that. The focus was more on physicality and tactics, and we didn't have any. There was no such thing as a training film. So there, i.e., in-car videos or body-worn cameras or cell phone videos, was nothing like that. So it was a totally different environment when I came in to when I left. So it's been a nice career. I've had uh, many critical incidents, maybe more than the average guy in a small town. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It's just how it played out for me. Some people go through their whole career and never get into even close to the stuff that I got into. Mm. So, can you talk a little bit about some of the critical incidents that you were involved in over the course sure. of your career? Sure. The, in 1998, my, I was a sergeant in Eagle Lake, Texas, which is about 15 miles from my hometown. I served there for a total of 15 years. The last 10 of those years as the chief of police. But at that time, I was a sergeant, and um, I just got through training a guy, Tobin Craig Thomas. You can look him up on Officer Down Memorial page. And he and I had gotten dispatched to what I immediately recognized as a bad call. Hadn't been a cop, but eight or nine years, but you just develop a sense of it. And a man had murdered his girlfriend at a nightclub, and then he walked down the street and he set up an ambush for us. And when Tobin arrived, uh, you know, I arrived more or less at the same time, but coming in from different ends of the street, they're talking on the radio, trying to figure out, you know, you come this way, I'll go this way. And I saw a guy running from the area. This is a really dark area, and it's probably about 12:30 in the morning, 4:30 at night, however you want to say that. And so I went after that guy told Tobin to stay with the body that we had seen out in the street. And I got close to the guy and heard a gunfire. And actually, bullets were zipping by my head because I'd gotten out of the car to make contact with the guy. So I jumped back in the car, went back, and I found Tobin laid out on his back with his pistol near his hand. He was just gasping for breath, and there was nobody else around. It was pitch black there. No street light, no nothing. It was in a poor part of town. And I didn't know what happened. I knew that shots had been fired. I felt them whizzing by my head, kind of like the old cowboy movie. It's like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And I knew that shots had been fired, but Tobin wasn't bleeding. And he just was kind of gasping. And so I was shining my light on him, looking, trying to figure out what happened, and also looking to see where the shooter was. And I knew there was, had been a gunfight and couldn't see anything anywhere. And so I had called for help on the radio. The shots were fired. The officers down. And the whole thing took from the time we were dispatched, from the time that I called out, it was less than three minutes. Mm-hmm. Because violence happens fast. Mm-hmm. And so I just... Started CPR as best I could, still not even knowing where he'd been struck, but knowing that something was wrong. I didn't know if he had a heart attack. I didn't know what was going on. So I started CPR. The ambulance got there. Other cops started arriving from neighboring agencies because Tobin and I were the only two in Eagle Lake that were on duty. Mm-hmm. And um, he died. And mm-hmm. um, I watched I watched the life go out of his eyes. And, of course, you know, CPR was still going, and, but I, I saw him leave. They pronounced him a couple of hours later at the local hospital there. And um, we found out later that the gentleman that set up the ambush for us had fired one round 
of a double buckshot, and all the there's nine pellets in that, and all the pellets except two were caught in Toby's body armor, and two of them went between the his duty belt and his body armor and severed his spine. Mm. Massive internal bleeding, and when we moved him from the spot that we'd been doing first aid, there was just a, like a maybe a teaspoon size area of clear liquid. There was never any blood. So mm-hmm. We still didn't know what happened to him when he when we took him off. So then, oh, I forgot while I was administering CPR, I felt really I had my gun, my pistol in one hand. I was trying to help Tobin with the other hand, and I felt really bad about an area. I guess my, my lizard brain, for lack of a better word, was processing mm-hmm. things and figuring out, okay, the gunfire must have come from here. And uh, I picked up and charged the area with real high weeds, head high weeds, and a light pole. And I found a uh, assailant there dead. In one of Tobin's rounds, he fired seven rounds. One of them had struck the fellow in the forehead. And dropped wow. him instantly. Yeah, I dropped him instantly. And um, and I knew all these people. You know, it's a small mm-hmm. town. And yeah. I knew the I knew the girlfriend that got murdered. I knew the guy that killed her. And you know, it's just what that played out for me is going forward after all that badness. Because I kept bumping into these people, the kinfolk, and uh, you know, people come up and say, "I heard you shot my dad. I'm going to get you," and just small town stuff, which is cool. That's the that's the environment I'm good with. So after Tobin was the doctor came and said, you know, sorry, we couldn't do anything. And then my chief and I and a couple of other cops, we processed the crime scene. So that's just what you do in a small town at that time. And so we process we worked the crime scene and we you know, processed the other two bodies and I got back to the office probably about 6.30 or 7, and I wrote the initial report. I went home, and I slept for a couple hours. My pastor came over and prayed and slept for a couple hours. And I got up and went back to work. Mm. That's 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 my experience in small-town law enforcement in 1998. There was no after-action critical incident review, no no. ways to sort of process that mentally or emotionally three or four days later dps the dps sergeant arranged for uh a blue bonnet counseling or something to come down and do a after action a critical incident debrief Mm -hmm. i don't know what they were calling at that time but that was that was it that was all of it Mm -hmm. and then i i later filled all all that paperwork to get tobin's widow money and you know it's helping all those processes which is not unusual in a small environment. They don't have dedicated officers or an HR or anything like that. So that was my experience. So all I knew to do was just mash it down and go to work. Mm-hmm. That, that was my that was my deal. And I'd already done that with a couple of other critical incidents. And eventually, I just started feeling. Ill. I can't even describe it exactly, but there was just such an aversion to even putting those clothes back on. And I drove to work in my POV, my privately owned vehicle, and got to work and got in the squad car and cranked it up. And I just, I started vomiting. I had to lean out and just, I vomited. Mm. And I rinsed my mouth out and I hit the street, started patrolling. I probably, probably for the next six months, I vomited at least once during my patrol shift. Wow. You know, people ask you, you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. I got this. I'm, I'm yeah, I'm good. You know? Mm-hmm. Keep m- m- mashing that down. Just keep going. Yes, yes. Just keep mashing it. Don't even, you can function like that. You know, but you're not functioning high. There's, there's parts of the year and a half or two years after Tobin got murdered that I cannot remember now. I just can't remember it. There's just whole periods of time that are gone. And how did that affect your family situation? You talked about how your wife noticed changes in you. Yeah, well, she, nobody had cell phones at that point. So one of the guys that came from the sheriff's office, I think he had a, he might have had a cell phone. I think it was a car phone. And so I called my wife and said, hey, 
Tobin's been shot. I'm okay. Tobin's on the way to the hospital. I'm not going to be home on time, but I'm okay. So I hung up with her. She left our three kids in the care of my sister, whose husband, HPD cop, and she came to town. She came to Eagle Lake, and she went straight to the hospital thinking, I'm going to help Laura, Tobin's wife. I'm going to help Laura because they had a two-year-old girl. We had just celebrated her birthday, during her birthday party. My daughter's the same age as she is. And so when my wife got to town, she went to the hospital, and the cops are milling around, and they're, she's like, where's Tobin? Where's Laura? And they told her, Tobin didn't make it, and we're just fixing to go over to Laura's house. So my wife went with one of the cops who was tongue-tied. We had no training and death notification, nothing like oh. that, like we have nowadays. Yeah. So my wife went to the house, and she actually knocked on the door and notified Laura. So she saw Laura crumpled to the ground, and all that stuff. So she's got, my wife had her own trouble she was going through. Then watching mm-hmm. me leave and go to work every night after having watched her worst nightmare unfold right in front of her. So she watched mm-hmm. all that. So over the course of a year and a half or two years, and she didn't know anything to do either except shove it down. And our kids were little. My daughter was two, and my two boys would have been like three and four four and five we just tried to carry on just keep going but i started losing my temper quicker i started getting mad about to me now looking back just inconsequential things and you know there's a level of that anyway when you got a house full of littles you know they aggravate Mm -hmm. anyhow just on the regular you know so for a long time, I just thought, well, this is what a father feels like. And then as the years progressed, I began, and I can look back and see it now, but I couldn't see it when I was in it, if that makes sense. Because of the psychological injuries I had received, I was not able to separate past events with current events. Mm-hmm. So when my kids okay. would be running around the house yelling, and screaming like kids do and playing and chasing each other, my mind would take me back to family violence calls where there was a bunch of yelling and screaming. And I would bring that memory up into where my kids were playing, and I would treat them as if they were suspects or it was just bad. And my wife mm-hmm. saw that, and she was trying to figure out, but she didn't know any differently either. I thought, okay, mm-hmm. this is part of being a cop, and we're just going to muddle through this. and you know, went to church a lot and prayed a lot. I have my worldview as Christian. Prayed a lot and, you know, just did the best we could. Yeah. When did you decide, I'm not going to live like this anymore and I need help? And what did that what did that feel like? Can you kind of talk us through that process? Sure. sure. I had run around with um, shooting pains, particularly across my left shoulder, for years. And just all of a sudden, stabbing pains, just random stabbing pains. And I associated with stress. That I, I'd been appointed chief, and I was a chief of police in Eagle Lake for 10 years. And then I left there and came to my hometown, Columbus, and I was the chief of police for five years, here before I retired. Mm-hmm. And so I started just through different trainings. I think probably the first time I was aware of anything, that something might be off with me, for lack of a better term. Was mm-hmm. at a six training, and they were talking about, you know, mental, some mental uh, wellness and some emotional wellness and things like that. And I'm like, hmm. So the seed was planted. I don't remember the instructor, but the seed was planted in the chief's training. Mm-hmm. At Lehman. At Lehman. That's amazing. So it was planted there. Yeah. So it was planted there, and then every couple of years I would go to more training. I would learn a little more. And I was also part of a PAPIT, the Texas Association of Property and Evidence Inventory Technicians. And at one of their conferences, I from Austin PD, I believe, was relaying a critical incident that he had gone through and how it had such a negative impact on his life. And that he'd gone to a lady named Dr. Tanya Glenn, and she conducted something called EMDR on it and mm-hmm. how much it changed his life. And I was like, hmm. 
So I'm just I'm touching this stuff in the back of my mind, but I'm still not ready to say I would like to participate in something that's healthy because this is a weird deal, and it may sound really unusual in this particular time period, and it may sound unusual for somebody from a larger agency, but I really believe that if I had said, I think I have PTSD, I think I'm not right, in the small town environment, I don't think I would have been able to work anymore. I don't think that sounds strange at all. I don't think I would have been able to work anymore. And I even say that from my from my position in leadership, I, mm-hmm. I wrestled when people came into my office and said, hey, you know, I'm having this trouble or that trouble, and I'm weighing out my genuine concern and care for the human being in front of me as opposed to my sworn duty to protect and serve 3,500 souls and provide them with quality service. And I'm thinking, okay, what if I – what if I help this guy, this gal get assistance, and then six months down later they're in a critical incident, they shoot somebody, and we're all getting in trouble because so you're liable for not exactly exactly mm-hmm. that that component was going on in my life for years. So what happened was just a series of of gaining knowledge and thinking, and at one again at least one of the classes somebody mentioned it was a toss off of Mark. We weren't like heavily discussing it, the death rate and the divorce rate and the suicide rate for cops, particularly after you leave the profession. And I was like, dang that. I love Mm -hmm. my life. I love my wife. I love my kids. I'm not going to get snuck up on by my own mind. That was my thought. I'm not going to get snuck up on by my own mind and get taken out and I started looking for help, and I called Dr. Glenn's office and said, hey. And I was at that point, it was probably I was two years from stopping work. I said, hey, you know, can I come in and see somebody? I didn't tell anybody but my wife. I didn't tell my kids. I said, I'm going to get fired. Dude, this is ridiculous. Don't do this. I'm having a lot of self-talk. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. do it. Don't do it. But the other part of me is like, I want to live. And I want to live well. Whatever years I've got left after I step out of this toxic environment, I want to live well. Spoke to somebody and went up to, drove over to, towards Austin area and met with a therapist a couple of times. And I was a candidate for EMDR. Dr. Glenn scheduled an appointment with me and I sat down and we went through the deal. And it was extraordinary. The relief I felt immediately, but then... In the coming days, and since then, the release that I've still enjoyed. Can you kind of explain what EMDR is for people who don't know? Sure. So it's, I think it's eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And what Dr. Glenn told me was that if you'll picture your mind like a file cabinet, you open the file cabinet, you shut the file cabinet. You open, you shut, and inside the file cabinet are all the files. And she told me that um, you, your brain hasn't processed these critical incidents. So every time you open your file cabinet for anything, the file that's sticking up sideways is catching. So it's a rough spot. Every time you open the door, it's a rough spot. It's like, look, there's that file. Look, there's that file. And she said, what we're going to do is we're going to try and help you process. And the, the file's not going to disappear. The event happened. This is not hypnosis. She was clear to tell me that a couple of times. I'm like, I'm going to be running around barking like a dog or something. And she's like, no, no. <laughs> and, and she said, we're going to help you process that, file it away correctly, and make sure the file is seated so that every time you open that drawer, it doesn't rub you. Like, all right. She told me to bring, she told me to bring my wife. She said, bring somebody. It's going to be exhausting. And it was. And um, so I went in her office, and if I recall correctly, because I was nervous as a man, I was wired. And mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, she sat next to me, I know that. And then she, I think, <laughs> you may correct me later, I think she wrapped black tape around her fingers, around two of her fingers, and she said, okay, just watch my fingers. I'm going to move them from side to side. 
And for cops, it's kind of like doing the horizontal gaze nystagmus when you're trying to figure mm-hmm. out if somebody's intoxicated. She said, I'm going to watch your eyes. And I'd already learned about combat breathing to a street survival school. And so I was doing my equivalent of combat breathing, just really deep breathing and some pauses in there. She said, I'm going to watch your eyes. I'm going to watch your breath. And when I tell you, I want you to think about COVID. So we did that for a second or two. And about the time my mind is going, oh, my God, this is malarkey. She said, okay, I want you to think about Tobin. And Lacey, I was right back. Mm. Right back there. I could even smell what Tobin had eaten on his breath because he had just eaten supper before he got murdered. I was right back in the 400 block of Fairview, June 18, 1998. I mean, I was there. And I just began weeping. Weeping. I mean, just like I got pepper sprayed. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, everything. And almost, I'm not ashamed of it, but I don't want to scare anybody, but I was I was almost howling I was moaning so bad. Yeah, you were processing, and, right? I mean, yeah. 20 years all later, things, more than, yeah, right? Yes, all the things wow. that I had ignored for all those years just came out mm-hmm. I mean it just came out so after a little while and, and Dr. Dean was so kind she was patting me on the back and just letting me letting me go and after several moments I caught my breath and wiped my nose and sat up and she said okay you want to do the next one and the next one was three months after Tobin got murdered I actually got held hostage and had the guy with a gun to my head. And my partner at that time, my new partner, just took a wild shot and shot the guy. And the, there was, it's a long story how we got there, but there was a, his child was between he and I. We were face to face, and my partner shot, the, shot him. And he dropped the gun, and I, I caught the kid before the kid actually even hit the ground. That's how close we were, and I took off running. And I thought I was shot. And so then we processed that incident. And same deal. I could remember stuff from that incident that I didn't even know was inside my head. It was like I was right back there. So then she said, same thing. She said, you ready? Okay, okay. And then the next incident I processed, the guy that saved my life shot himself in the head in front of us eight or ten years later. Oh. He had started drinking and just he was because he wasn't processing any of this stuff either. He came he came and helped process the murder scene where Tobin was murdered, and he had the same trauma stored up in him that I did. So it, it ultimately, he he really self medicated and just a bunch of mess. And he was a cop at the time, and he shot himself in front of us, and he was completely sober. So we processed, so I, I was back at the EMDR, so I processed that one. And um, then there were So you processed of three events in one session? Yes, and then I processed some more. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was a long session. And I processed a couple where men had shot, shot themselves in the head. One of them, his, his head was pretty much gone. I still don't even know how he was fighting, but I ended up getting a physical fight with him. Mm-hmm. Another guy that shot himself in the head. And the, the first guy died. The second guy shot himself in the forehead, and the bullet traveled up and around and popped out the top of his head. And I had to fight him because he was trying to get in the house and get a gun. And I kept bumping into that guy in the grocery store for years. It took him a long time. He finally just died of old age. He was glaring at me. He was glaring at me. And I'm like, Burr. so almost oh all my of my gosh. triggers, almost all of my triggers. Or where I love to live and where mm-hmm. I call home now because I'm bumping into people and bumping into situations. So after I experienced EMDR, it was exhausting. I was wrung out. Amanda drove me home, and Dr. Grant told me, she said, for the next couple of days, you're subject to things. We're going to be just floating up in your memory. She said, just sit with them 
experience them like you just experienced these things, and then just let the let the file settle and go. And that's happened for the next two or three days. I would just be stuff I hadn't thought of for years. So we're talking about at that point, it was probably every bit of 25 years for some of the stuff I remember from when I was first a sheriff's deputy in Colorado County. And after Tobin got murdered, this was one of my this was one of my big things because after a while I'm like, was that really valuable? You know, mm-hmm. after months after having done the EMDR, was that really valuable? That was a that was a lot of work. You know, mm-hmm. did I get any value from it? And I used to be a decent pistol shot and um, used to like shooting guns and stuff. And after Tobin got murdered. In 98, I barely qualified with my pistol every year and my shotgun and my rifle. Barely. I would get so, what they call a yippee. I, I just couldn't, man, I couldn't, my, my breath, my, every time I heard the sound of a gunshot, to the point where whenever I would work the little local fireworks shows on the 4th of July, the first firework that went off, I would have to step behind a tree I had to go squat down behind my car and just cry for just a second. It's like a couple of tears. And I'd lock it back up and I'd come out from behind the tree and I'd get back out in the crowd and mingle and watch for bad guys and do all that stuff. So the first fireworks show I worked, after EMDR, a couple of months later, I'm standing there talking with my partner and I realized that the fireworks had been going for 10 or 15 minutes and I didn't even think of it. I didn't even think of it. I didn't even think of it. And I I called Randa. I said, hey, that stuff works. (laughs) That's amazing. That stuff works. So since then, since since I had a positive experience with that, I started looking at and and became involved in a practitioner of yoga. I don't understand it. I don't understand the chakras. I don't understand how any of this stuff works, but I believe it. Yeah. mindfulness, meditation. I started doing that. And I've just had positive changes in my life since then. Even with the mm-hmm. way that I interact with my grandkids. Because still, until I, until I started doing yoga and meditation and practicing some mindfulness techniques, I would still get upset when they were running around the house because I was still remembering Oh, so many family violence calls where it was loud and rambunctious and noisy, and it was my job to come in, make order, and make peace, and make quiet. So my my lizard brain would mm-hmm. yank me when one of my kids, my grandkids, would go running through the house. My lizard brain would yank me back to all these different family violence calls, and I would respond like a cop, you know, and I would police my. Police my grandchildren just like I'd police my children. So when I started practicing yoga, practicing meditation and mindfulness, those things over the last five years have fallen off. And I'm a talker. So I told all, I called all my kids, you know, apologize, I'm sorry. I think it's no big deal. But since then, two of my children, one of whom is a ambulance court, one of whom is a cop, have also gone through NDR with Dr. Glenn, and one of the things that, that my son at the cop, one of the things that he processed in, he came through the house that night after I got home, after Tobin got murdered, a small house, we weren't, were never very wealthy. There was a small house, and he came, and he stood, and he was listening in the living room while I was relaying all these things to my pastor. And and my son, he's either four or five, got a psychological injury from listening to me talk about it. And when he went to EMDR with Dr. Glenn, that came up. That was one of the things he had never processed. Hmm. So my whole family has been on just uh, learning, exploration, kind of deal. It took so much courage for you to, first of all, just make that call and go see Dr. Glenn. And I just love the way in the classroom you so openly talked about it because 
you want to share your story so you can help other people to not live for 20 years in that sort of pain and discomfort. If you could talk to every law enforcement officer, what would you tell them? I would tell them the exact same thing that I just told my son-in-law. And he called and he said, how did you, he said, if you had to do things different, what would you have done? I said, Mm -hmm. I would have gone and gotten help regardless of any negative consequence that might have come, i.e. I'm going to lose my job. I told him that I don't understand why it's like that, but it is like that in law enforcement. I can't speak for the other disciplines in the first responder role, but in law enforcement, it's, 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 it's a thing. And I told him I ignored all those symptoms to, the, to my own peril and to the detriment of my family and my quality of life for all those years. I said, if I had just gone and spoke to somebody about that, and then three months later spoke to somebody about Tim saving me and me almost getting my head shot off, and then years later gone to somebody and spoke to somebody about Tim killing himself in front of us, I said, I would still be in law enforcement because I would have been taking care of my mind as it went, I said, but those things were not even, I didn't even know, I mean, I mean, it was just a, a cloud of ignorance, for lack of a better word. It's not because it's small town, podunk, or anything like that. It was just maybe the, the time, mm-hmm. I don't know, the, the, you know, that's 20 and 25 years ago, that just, that stuff wasn't, it was just not happening. That's what I was thinking the other day in the classroom with you. When you spoke up, a couple of other, of other chiefs spoke up about how they're practicing meditation and they have sought treatment. And I was like, oh, my gosh, things are changing, you know, and you can start to they feel are. that things are changing. So maybe yeah, those seeds that are. were planted <laughs> 10, 15 years ago are starting to yeah. manifest now. Yeah. I don't know if it's, if it's cops and soldiers and firefighters and EMS, but you know, I, I haven't. I'm familiar with those things, more familiar with cops. But there's a, a cultural thing of being able to take it and not break. That's seen as a sign of strength, and I think in law enforcement, until we flip that and say no, that's actually you received a psychological injury, and we need to make sure that that's not going to cripple you somewhere down the road. We do it with our physicality. Mm-hmm. There's no shame in being injured. And PTSD is a psychological injury. There's not a shame to it. You got injured. You're out there yeah. working. You're doing heroic, valiant things. Yeah. And you got injured. You know, I think until in law enforcement in the first responder world, again, I can't speak directly to, to fire EMS, but until we somehow managed to see a psychological injury is just that. It's an injury. Mm-hmm. I was psychologically injured just as if somebody had stabbed me with a knife. Nobody would have expected me to poke a, a piece of gauze in a knife wound and come back to work. Yeah, I exactly. Said, That's stupid. What are you doing? And I would have said, hey, this is what's done. But nobody expects that. But for some reason or another, the whole stigma with with mind health illness and wellness and you know we're not even in a larger context people in general aren't willing to say that they might be sick a little bit yeah they might be not as well as they could be god forbid you say you're mentally ill you know mm-hmm. that usually challenges up who knows what issues whatever and maybe that's just for an old like i said i'm 58 maybe that's for an older subset in the nation i don't know but well, I think our perception of mental illness is what we've seen in movies and, you know, we've been sort of programmed to think of certain things. You know, you think about like The Shining or uh, what about Bob or, you know, these Hollywood portrayals of mental illness. And that's not necessarily what, what it is. Again, and like going back to the subconscious wiring and how we perceive anything, whether it's mindfulness or yoga or, you know, seeking treatment. But I was thinking about when you were talking about going to Dr. Glenn, kind of coming back to your EMDR experience, it took number one courage to make the call, to set up the appointment, 
to drive to Austin for the appointment and then to go in and have that session where you were processing all of those things and kind of knowing that you were going to process all of that, do you think that maybe just knowing that you're going to have to bring back such hard things and those awful memories might keep people from seeking treatment? I think yes. Yeah. I believe you. I think, I think yes. It's like almost, I just don't want to go there, maybe. Exactly. And it would be, it would be, let's say that you got your, your leg got broke and you limped along and you splinted it as best you could. And over the course of the time, it became functional. It wasn't straight. You could still walk on it. You could even run on it because the body mm-hmm. does amazing things and so does the mind to compensate. You could still do it. So it would almost be the equivalent of going to an actual physician and getting your leg rebroke so then it could be set. Mm, it's a great analogy. You're doing that, with, you're doing that with, your, with your mind and your emotions, and it goes against the culture because most of the culture would rather see you, I'm talking about cop culture, would rather see you limping than showing any kind of signs of vulnerability because if you show signs of vulnerability, I got to show signs of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And it's going to mm-hmm. be like a stack of dominoes falling and we're all going to be vulnerable and we're all going to have to go get our legs reset. The trick with that is that not every human being processes every episode. I've gone to, uh, for a good example, those three incidents that I just mentioned, the, the real, the real, the bees, my trifecta of bees, help me getting murdered me being held hostage, Tim shooting the guy, and then Tim shooting himself in front of us. A lot of the same men and women experience the exact same things, but because of who they are, how they were raised, their mindset at the time, they experience it different, and some of them did not receive a psychological injury from any of that. Staggering to think, how did you not get injured? But they didn't. They're just like, Okay, so this is not like everybody that's ever been on a hot call needs to go. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a one-size-fits-all deal, but I think in the culture, I think the culture says if it happened to you, it probably happened to this one, it happened to this one, all of us need to go do this thing. And it's not true. Not all of us do need to go do that thing. You know? I yeah, that makes a lot I of think, sense. I think it would be helpful, and I, I told my son-in-law and I told my other children, I think it's helpful to go once a year and just speak to somebody about anything that's come up. It's all, I, you know, I go get my teeth cleaned once every six months, and I don't sneak into the dentist's office with a trench coat and a hat pulled down on my eyes, but I go get my teeth cleaned, right? So why not just, I don't know how we, how we as, as first responders would do this, why not make that part of the wellness? Hey, you know, yeah. you go talk to somebody. Not after you've shot someone, not after you've been involved in a critical incident, but just go get your teeth cleaned. Yep. You know, don't wait till you got a cavity and you got to get one yanked. The only way I know how to accomplish that is just by speaking. And cops value truth. They, I mean, that's there's a premium on truth in law enforcement. Can't mm-hmm. say about any of the other disciplines, but in law enforcement, there's a premium on truth. And when you get somebody that's willing to stand there and look you in the eye and tell you, this has been my experience in this job, even if the cop is thinking you're a weenie mm-hmm. or you're weak, they still will esteem you because you spoke truth. And maybe if people just started speaking truth, about their experiences, maybe that would help change the culture. I could not agree more. And you speaking your truth in that classroom, I can tell you was powerful for people that were in there. And for me as a facilitator and instructor of mindfulness and yoga and resilience and all the things that I talk about, I understand the science behind them, but nobody can teach experience. And your experience is just incredibly valuable for any anyone. And again, that's why I wanted to just get this conversation recorded so that we could hopefully push it out and maybe help some more people that need to hear what you have to say. And I, I'll talk to anybody anytime. I don't pretend to know all. I am seriously learning. I mean, I'm like, I'm learning. The, the meditation and the mindfulness and the yoga 
people find out that I'm practicing yoga, they're like, oh, what about this chakra and that chakra and so on and so on? I'm like, hey, don't, uh, I am not, don't, that's weird. Don't even talk to me about that part of it. I'm just a dude that wants to live well. Yeah. Whatever like years that. I've got left, I want to live well. Yes. What changes have you noticed from the mindfulness? Because to me, yoga, and I've been teaching yoga a long time, I think yoga is innately a mindfulness activity, you know, and it's about concentrating on your breathing as you move your body. But then there's the seated sort of meditation practice. You're doing both of those things. So what 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 have you noticed from doing those practices changes? Um, it almost goes. It, it should almost go without saying. But I'm so chilly now. <laughs> it's like somebody better go poke him and see if he's still over there. You know, I'm like seriously. <laughs> I'm like seriously. I'm like okay. And one of the yeah. things that one of the things, and, and this may be, I'm not sure what the component is here. Maybe because I stopped and I'm not in a toxic environment because law enforcement has a lot of toxicity and some positives, but for it might be coupled with the fact that I'm not in that environment anymore. Because the first couple of years, I had to, to talk myself off a ledge when I saw somebody speeding through town. And I mm-hmm. used positive self-talk. That's not your job. It's no longer your task to make somebody behave. If that guy wrecks down the road, it's not your fault because you don't oh, have yeah. anything to do with that. And just this, this huge circle of talk, I do it all the time. Brenda would be like, what are you mumbling at? I can't this man the stop sign. She's like, I didn't even see it. That's because you ain't looking for it. I'm still looking for it because I'm still a cop inside somewhere. All those, all those things, since I've started the mindfulness, and realizing that there's no time except right now on the phone with my new friend, Lacey, enjoying a conversation. What might happen, I can do nothing about. And what did happen 20 minutes ago, I can do nothing about. But what mm-hmm. I can do is enjoy this conversation right yeah. this second. So that's been a process of training myself to think that way because I didn't used to think that way. One of the things we do as cops is we ride around looking for crap to get into and thinking how we're going to deal with the crap we're fixing to get into. We call it scenarios. We run scenarios in our mind all the time. Okay, if this traffic stops, the next thing's going to happen. This guy might jump out. That passenger might have a gun. I'm going to have to roll this way. I'm going to have to go to the back of the car. I'm just going to floor it and run over everybody. And that, that's your mm-hmm. mind does that all the time, all the time, even when you're not working. Wow. So to change my mind, to change my mind, how I think has been work. And going back to the scenario training, that's a healthy thing, though, for law enforcement, right? Like we want to go home at the end of your shift. Yeah. You want to go home at the end of your shift. You want to prevail. Yeah. But then to be able to turn that off, and then just be with your family mm-hmm. is a skill that we've got to build. Yes, we've got to build it. It's, and it, and it, it plays into resilience. And I don't understand sitting from the comfort of the sidelines, not having any dog in the fight. I don't understand why administrators can't see how healthy that would be to build resilience, mind resilience, mind mm-hmm. health, into your officer because you're pouring a lot of money into this person. Mm-hmm. You're training your the equipment. Uh, and then I'm I'm basically when I tell you I would probably still be a cop if I had been paying attention to myself. Oh, I did all the physical stuff. I'm yeah. a soft and spicy little fellow. I'm scrawny. I'll call <laughs> you like a spider monkey. <laughs> I I I I've always worked out, I've exercised, I've run. Uh, um, martial arts, all that stuff, if I had paid a little bit of attention, but my mind paid me back so much, I would have probably still been in law enforcement. My -hmm. goal was to do 30 or 35 years, and I stopped at 27 years and 10 months because I couldn't do it anymore. I wasn't willing to pay the price anymore. 
Yeah. If I'd been paying a little bit as I went, I wouldn't have had to pay so big at the end. Well, you, I love that you were still very much engaged with the community. And just because you're retired doesn't mean you're not still making a difference. It's truly through stories like yours and people who are willing to be vulnerable. You said the other day in the classroom, you said, I, I was uncomfortable talking about it here. And I don't even know why I'm uncomfortable talking yeah, about it. Yeah, I was it, getting but, breathless. Like I was yeah, but you did it. <laughs> I'm like, it's okay. I'm amongst friends. I don't know all of them, but we're okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And somebody in that room probably needed to hear what you had to say that day. And hopefully somebody listening to the podcast will feel the same and maybe share it with somebody that needs to hear it. And I am just so grateful that I met you and had the opportunity to have this conversation. And I definitely want to stay in touch. And, you know, maybe there's, maybe we can go do a presentation together sometime. Sure. I, I love the connection that, that I felt immediately in the classroom. Yeah. And yeah. wherever it goes, it's going. I'm mm -hmm. along with it. All right. Well, thank you again, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. The sun is up, and I'm three cups of coffee in, so. <laughs> All good. All right. See you later. All right. Take care. Thank you again. All right. All right. Bye. All right. What a great show. Chief Lattimore crushes it on that episode. Lacey, good job holding down the the interviews. And not only is it just such an interesting story, I think there's so many nuggets of information that that you know people can take and run with. Yeah, and just what an amazing person. I just love to be able to connect with people like Chief Lattimore and his wife and to share these experiences. That's that's why we have a podcast. What I think is really neat about this is. Um, Chief said, like, he, he feels like if he'd have had these tools earlier, he could have stayed in law enforcement longer. Uh, and you do get the sense, like, he's got a lot more to give. And I think this is just a next step for him, you know? Yeah, Wouldn't ahead. be surprised to see uh, a lot more of him and his wife coming up and uh, if not Ford Resilient, uh, some, some other places where they can really benefit the next generation of law enforcement, police, fire, and EMS. Yes, a lot more. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. I know that's why you married me because I laugh at your jokes. But. That's it. That's it. All right. Uh, to our listeners out there, thank you so much for uh, sticking with us and uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. All right. Take care, everybody. All right. <laughs>